I want to begin this morning by reading to you from an ancient Christian document about a man named Polycarp, who was the leader of the church in Smyrna, which today is in western Turkey. And while Polycarp was leading this church, Roman officials began requiring Christians to swear an oath, renouncing Christ and worshiping Caesar. And Polycarp refused to do this. And so the reading begins, he was taken to the arena. The uproar in the arena was so great that no one could even be heard. And Polycarp was taken before the proconsul, the governor. But when the proconsul pressed him and said, Take the oath and I will let you go. Revile Christ. Polycarp said, For eighty and six years have I been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul said, I have wild beasts. I will deliver you to them unless you repent. Polycarp said, Call for them. For repentance from better to worse is not allowed us, but it is good to change from evil to righteousness. And the proconsul said again to him, I will cause you to be consumed by fire if you despise the beasts unless you repent. But Polycarp said, You threaten with the fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and in everlasting punishment. But why are you waiting? Come do what you will. And at age 86, Polycarp was burned to death for his Savior. Martyrdom of Polycarp displays a reality that Christians have often faced throughout history, which is the reality of persecution. The book of Acts tells us persecution was something that the very earliest Christians faced. And persecution is something that Christians in our own time face as well. And we've seen this quite vividly with the recent return to power of the Taliban in Afghanistan, who've been killing Christians, and they've been killing anybody with a Bible app on their smartphone. And between the ancient persecutions of the book of Acts and the recent persecutions of our Afghan brothers and sisters, and the, the, the 2,000 years in between, they've all been filled with Christians who suffered, and many of whom died because of their love for Christ. And today as we continue our study in the Gospel according to Matthew, we're going to talk about this subject of persecution as we continue Matthew chapter 10. And in this chapter, Jesus is teaching his 12 disciples and he's preparing them because he's about to send them out on their first mission trip. You might remember we saw at the end of chapter 9, Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Just like today, back in the first century, there were many, many people who had a desperate need to hear about Jesus. And yet up to this point in Matthew's narrative, only Jesus has been out there trying to reach them. Unbounded by his humanity, Jesus cannot get to all of these needy folks. And so he decides to expand his outreach. He's going to send his disciples out into the mission field to reach these people. And so Jesus is getting the disciples ready for this trip. And we saw last week that Jesus gave the disciples some ground rules for how this trip was to be conducted. First, he told them what they were supposed to do. They were to preach the same message Jesus has been preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And to authenticate this message, the disciples were also to perform the same sorts of miracles that Jesus had been performing. But they weren't just to take this message everywhere indiscriminately. Instead, Jesus told them at this point, just go to the Jews in Galilee. And as they went, they were to go to many different towns throughout this region. But they weren't to stay in any one place for very long. When they came to a town, they were to find someone who would give them lodging and food for a few days while they proclaimed their message. And then if their message was rejected, they were to separate themselves from that place and go on to the next town. And that's what Jesus has told them so far. But now Jesus is going to tell them more. And what he's going to say now would be very difficult for them to hear because Jesus is now going to tell the disciples, you will face some hard times on this mission trip and beyond. Because today Jesus is going to talk to the disciples, not just about this trip they're about to begin, but about the future course of their lives. And what Jesus is going to tell them is they are going to face a lot of persecution in the future. And that's not just true for the twelve. This will be true for Christians down through the ages. Friends, it's true for us as well. Persecution is an ordinary experience in the Christian life. 
It's something we need to learn to expect and to learn how to deal with. And that's what we're going to be seeing over the next few sermons as we look at chapter 10. Now today I'm not going to go verse by verse uh, through this passage. What we're going to do today instead is we're going to make one quick trip through the chapter. And we're not going to see everything in this, in this very extensive sermon Jesus preaches. But what I want to focus on today are what the things that Jesus has to say in this sermon about the extent of persecution and the sources of persecution that Christians face. Okay, So what we're going to do today is just two things. First, we're going to define persecution. And second, we're going to see six things that Jesus says about persecution in this chapter, where it comes from and, and what it's like. Okay, All right, so let's start now just with the definition of the word persecution. And you might say, why do we have to start with the definition? Friends, I think this is really important because we live in a time in the American church in which we hear a lot about persecution. We see the specter of institutional persecution coming. Many of us are afraid of it. Many churches and Christians have turned to political activism, believing that this will somehow forestall the coming of persecution. But frankly, a lot of what I hear today about persecution really seems to miss a lot of, of what the Bible says about this subject. And I think that departure begins right at the top with what is persecution. So I want to start today by looking at three elements that the Bible indicates are a part of persecution. Number one, persecution involves harm. Now, if I said to you, okay, when I say persecution, what do you think of? You're probably thinking of someone being put to death by a government for their faith. And we said a minute ago, this has happened certainly many times throughout history. From Christians being fed to the lions in ancient Rome to Christians being shot today in North Korea, many people have died for their faith. But persecution doesn't have to be a governmental thing. We'll see that in just a minute. It can be a private interpersonal experience. And it doesn't have to terminate in death. It can involve other forms of harm other than physical injury that leads to death. For instance, in just a few minutes, we're going to see Jesus talk about people being flogged for their faith. It's physical harm that doesn't kill. Persecution can also involve economic harm. We see a picture of this in Revelation 13 where we're told that no one can buy or sell unless he worships the beast by taking his mark. Now, what this entails is much disputed, but what's clear is this is a picture of economic persecution. And in fact, friends, economic persecution has happened many times throughout history, particularly in Islamic lands, and especially in the Middle Ages. Christians were subjected to intense economic deprivation and taxation to try to compel them to convert to Islam. I think we see some forms of economic persecution in our society today, as Christians in the wedding industry have become civilly liable if they refuse to offer their services for homosexual marriages which are contrary to their faith. Indeed, economic harm can be persecutory. So can reputational harm, suffering slander, or insult. Jesus is very clear about this in Matthew 5.11. He says, Blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's not a government coming to kill you. That's someone lying about you or just insulting you for your faith. And yet, Jesus seems to think that counts as persecution that God will honor you for enduring. So, persecution always entails harm, whatever that harm may be. And I say that because I hear a lot of people today talking about persecution, but it seems like they think persecution is involving policies or ideas that they just don't like or that trigger them or that offend their sensibilities. But friends, that's not persecution because that doesn't consist of actual harm. Okay, you can disagree with something without it being persecutory. Number two, persecution is targeted. It is a harm given only to a particular segment of society. For example, the Apostle Paul said prior to his conversion, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. He was harming one particular group of people, believers. He left other folks alone. So persecution is targeted harm. Now, the third element in a biblical definition of persecution, is that it is targeted harm which is inflicted upon believers because of our witness for Christ. Okay, So just because 
a group of Christians endure targeted harm, that doesn't mean it's persecutory. Let me give you an example. Let's say our church decides to violate the fire code, and we get a fine. Fine is economic harm, and it's targeted. We got the fine, not anybody else. Is that persecutory? No, because the harm we're suffering in this example is not for Jesus' sake. 1 Peter 2.20 says, What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Suffering because of sin or folly isn't persecution. In fact, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 10. He says, You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Persecution is harm which is connected to our association with Jesus and only with our association with Jesus. Matthew 5.11, he says, It's suffering on my account. Okay, so it's not persecution. If in coming years we suffer, the evangelical church in America suffers because of our political advocacy in recent years, or because we adopted certain positions about the pandemic or the last election or any other hot-button issue that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus or the Bible, if there is blowback from that in coming years, that's on us, and we don't get to pretend that's righteous suffering. Okay? Persecution is only about our connection to Jesus. And that's really important to say based on the sort of the currents that are going through the American church today. And I think it's important to be precise about this because to talk about persecution, if we aren't really undergoing it, is to trivialize the actual hardships that our other brothers and sisters in Christ are enduring. And secondly, if we want to complain about persecution when we aren't actually undergoing it, that will cause people to not pay attention when we actually do face institutional persecution because we will have lost our credibility at large by crying wolf. So I think we've got to be really careful before we start asserting that something is persecutory and we need to make sure that it fits within the confines of this definition. Because otherwise, friends, if we just claim that every single thing we don't like in the news or every single policy we don't like from some, some political group or some government or whatever, that we say that's persecution when it isn't. We are acting just like the world around us, playing the victim card, hoping that by asserting that we are being victimized, we can make a power move to shut down other people who are doing things we don't like. But friends, that's not Christian, that's worldliness. All right, now let's turn to our second point. Here we're going to see six really important things that Jesus has to say about real persecution in Matthew chapter 10. And we're just going to look at them in turn. The first truth that we find is in verse 16, and this is what Jesus says. He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Okay, so Jesus is about to send his disciples on this mission, and he wants them to know this isn't going to be a vacation. Quite often today, affluent Western churches send people on short-term foreign mission trips, which basically wind up being glorified vacations. Okay, that's not what's happening here. Jesus says this trip the twelve are about to take is like sheep going to wolf land. And wolves like to eat sheep, right? If you're a sheep, this isn't the sort of travel itinerary you would come up with. But it is where the disciples are going. Why? Because Jesus is sending them there. In fact, Jesus draws particular attention to this point, right? He doesn't just say, you're going to the wolves. He says, I'm sending you to the wolves. That sounds crazy. Kind of a shepherd sends his sheep to the wolves. Why would Jesus do this? Because, friends, the harvest is plentiful. Because there are many lost people out there who need to hear about Jesus. And Jesus knows that the only way to reach them is for his people to take the path of immense danger. Because the path of proclaiming the gospel is always the path that faces opposition and rejection and persecution. And so out of his, his profound, compassionate love for the lost, Jesus sends his disciples to face the danger just as he sends us today on our mission to go make disciples, right? Now, I think there are two practical things we need to glean from this first truth. Number one, friends, the world is a very dangerous place. Now, this is a truth that we try to avoid, right? This is a truth we hope our kids won't encounter. This is why many of us live in the suburbs with police cars on every intersection, right? 
because we want to feel safe. But friends, there is danger out there. There are people out there who really want to inflict harm on others. A few weeks ago, Sarah and I were hanging out at our house, and we heard this really loud noise. And we were like, what is that? And it turned out it was a gunshot that was used to blow away a 16-year-old kid just a few blocks away from our house. Stuff like that happens in the real world. The world is not a safe place. And it's certainly not a safe place for believers. In John 3, Jesus says, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light. People hate God. They hate the gospel. And we'll see in a minute, that means they hate those who represent Jesus. There are wolves out there, friends, who would love to harm you. And yet, our second point, or second application here is, even though there's real danger out there, we need to know Jesus sends his people to go and meet it. There is a sense within American Christianity today that says, okay, there's danger out there, all right, so let's hunker down. Let's build our own culture to avoid interaction with that dangerous world out there. And that may sound appealing and safe to us, but friends, it isn't. Because Jesus, our Lord, sends us to the world. And while the world is dangerous, I've got to tell you the danger from the world is much less than the danger that comes from deliberately disobeying Christ's orders. Friends, the safest path for us is to take the hard path of obedience, and that means we must follow Jesus' command, and we must face the dangers of this world to try to win the lost. They say, well, that scares me. Okay, I understand that, but I want you to know that there is a truth that you can take refuge in, which is the sovereignty of God. Jesus is Lord of all. He will watch over us as we face the danger. He will bring about good where uh, wicked people mean evil. He, he will accomplish His excellent purposes in our lives and the lives of those people we try to reach. And we're going to talk a lot more about how Jesus wants us to respond to the threat of persecution next time. But I want you to know right now, friends, we can face persecution because we know that Jesus is in command. Now, maybe today you resent this idea that Jesus would send you into danger. You might say, well, I'm weak. Why does Jesus want to send me into danger? Why doesn't he face the danger himself? But friends, I've got to tell you, Jesus did face the danger, right? He came to this world. He spoke the truth. He faced the wolves, and they put him on a cross. So Jesus isn't sending us into anything he wasn't willing to endure. And we follow his example when we obey him and proclaim him to those around us despite the danger. So friends, what I really want you to see here from this first truth is it's not for us to engage in our own private calculation and decide that our personal safety is better than obeying Jesus. No, friends, obeying Jesus is what matters. And that means we must proclaim his, the gospel of his deity, his death, and his resurrection, even though that will cause people in the world to rise up against us. But where will these people come from? What spheres of life will we encounter them in? Well, that's what we see in the second truth we find in this section. Look now at verse 17. Jesus says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in the synagogues. All right, now Jesus tells the twelve, Here's some things you're going to encounter on your mission. And in so doing, he's also previewing what the twelve are going to experience later in their lives. Because after Jesus ascends into heaven, these men are going to be the first leaders of the church. They're the first missionaries. They're the first church planters. And they're going to face the brunt of the opposition of the world first. And Jesus says, here's what's going to happen to you guys. You're going to be dragged by people who don't like you in front of courts so that they will condemn you. Who are these courts and what is this condemnation? Well, the Greek word translated courts here is often used to speak of local Jewish councils, like councils that ruled over the synagogues, and that seems to be what's in view here. See, synagogues disciplined their members by beating them and flogging them. I know in our world today, a lot of people say church discipline's pretty harsh. Friends, church discipline's got nothing on synagogue discipline. And Jesus says to the 12, this is going to happen to you. Jewish religious leaders are going to flog you in the synagogues. Not because the apostles are going to be guilty of sin. They're going to be flogged because they proclaim the gospel of Jesus. 
although he was not one of the 12, the Apostle Paul talked about experiencing the sentence in 2 Corinthians 11. Listen to this. He says, five times, I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. So repeatedly throughout his ministry, as Paul would go into synagogues, people would be offended and they would whip him 39 times. And this happened to him over and over again. And apparently the other apostles endured this as well during the time when Judaism was separating from Christianity. And not only did the apostles suffer as this process of separation took place, ultimately many early Christians would have been flogged. Many would have been expelled from their synagogues because of their belief in Jesus. And so we see here one potential source of persecution from the Jewish religious leaders. All right, now today... We need to understand that worldwide, much persecution is still conducted at the behest of religious leaders. Christians regularly suffer discrimination and violence in the Islamic world and in India at the hands of Hindus, violence which is advocated by false religious teachers. But friends, I think an even better line of application can be drawn here. Not to persecution that comes from leaders of false religions, but to persecution that comes upon God's people from within the church. Because after all, the Jewish religious leaders that Jesus is talking about here are not pagans. They weren't part of some foreign religion. They had the same Bible that Jesus and the apostles did. They professed to worship the same God, and yet they persecuted the Christ, and they persecuted his apostles, and they persecuted his followers. And i got to tell you, in the same way today, there are religious leaders who claim to represent the triune God, who claim to be Christians, and yet they abuse members of their flock who want to obey Jesus. There have been many high-profile examples of spiritual abuse like this over the past decade, but I'll share with you probably what I think is the worst case that I can remember. It involved elders in a megachurch who were requesting just basic financial transparency about their church's budget, and this led them to being summarily excommunicated from their church in an abusive exercise of discipline. They were slandered in front of the entire assembled church as being demonic. They were then sued by the church. And then the pastor was caught on an open microphone saying he wanted to plant illegal materials on these men's computers so that they would go to jail. This was at one of the most influential evangelical churches in America over the past decade. Church leaders were persecuted for trying to diligently discharge their duties as shepherds of the flock, and they were subjected to unconscionable abuse. Friends, persecution still happens today. And yes, it happens at the hands of the mullahs and fanatics in India, but it also happens from corrupt leaders who falsely claim to represent Christ, who want to make sure that the people of Jesus do not shine the bright light of Christ anywhere near their own personal darkness. But not only is persecution often perpetrated by religious leaders, and we see this now in the third truth about persecution we find in this passage. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Now, this is how we know that Jesus is talking to the twelve about more than just this immediate trip they're about to take. Because Jesus told the apostles on this first journey, Don't go near the Gentiles. And yet here he envisions a situation in which the apostles are standing before Gentile governors and kings. So this isn't a reference to their impending trip. Instead, Jesus here is preparing the apostles for the rest of their lives. When as they spread the gospel throughout the world, they would face governmental opposition. And why would they face this opposition? For Jesus' sake. That's what he says. Because of their testimony about Jesus. They would be charged with violating the law and dragged before political elites for judicial condemnations. Friends, what I want you to see here is that persecution is often driven by governmental and political actors. Okay, this is true in ancient Israel. A few weeks ago, we talked about Ahab and Jezebel. They tried to wipe out all the prophets of God. That's persecution. This was true in the life of Daniel. Remember, Daniel's friends were thrown into a fiery furnace because they would not worship the Babylonian idol. And they were thrown in under the decree of the king. And Daniel was thrown into a lion's den by a decree of the Persian king because he had the audacity to pray to his God. This was true for Jesus, who was crucified by the Romans. It was true for the apostles. The apostle James was killed on the orders of King Herod Agrippa, according to Acts 12. 
Peter and Paul were martyred on the orders of Emperor Nero, who ordered the deaths of countless Christians, many of whom were lit ablaze to, to illuminate his garden parties in the evening. Many other Christians were killed in the arena under him. Friends, the idea that governments kill Christians and persecute Christians has been true in nation after nation on every continent, no matter what the form of government was. And the New Testament indicates this will be the case right up until Christ's return. Governments and political elites will persecute the people of God. Why is this the case? That's the question the psalmist asked, I think, in Psalm 2. So why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. Governments and politicians often persecute the people of God as an expression of their hatred for God because they are corrupted by arrogance and a lust for power. Because they want to be free from God's constraints. They want to be free to do whatever they want. To revel in whatever evil they desire without being held to account. To amass power and wealth and fame. Friends, governments and elites are predisposed to hate God and God's people. And history teaches us this. Now maybe you say, well, yeah, but not here, right? We've got the First Amendment. Don't be so sure that Western liberal democracies protect Christians. In the 1960s, a great number of Baptist ministers spent time in prison in Quebec, in Canada, just for preaching the gospel. The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms allows all sorts of sanctions upon preachers of the gospel who speak the truth about sin and righteousness. This is also true throughout Europe. There are Christian hate preachers who preach the same kind of stuff you'd hear at almost any reputable church in the United States. I can tell you in this country, even before the excesses of the radical sexual revolution of the last decades, pastors have been sued for speaking out about abortion. Pastors have been jailed for participating in civil rights marches proclaiming biblical truths about the equality of all people. And in recent years, it's getting clear that there is a growing desire within our culture to see institutional persecution perpetrated against Christians in our society. Friends, the writing is on the wall. We see the White House illuminated to resemble the rainbow flag of the gay rights movement. We see members of Congress criticizing judicial nominees for their Christian beliefs. We see judges harassing the faithful and creating new rights for groups that are deeply opposed to Christianity and inviting the opportunity for litigation to settle the balance between these new invented rights and our religious liberties so that these judges may adjudicate whether we can continue to worship freely and preach the gospel. Friends, I think we see the winds of culture around us blowing, and they're blowing against us, and they're saying we are intolerant, that we are dangerous. And we see this and we think, how can we stop this madness? How can we stem this evil tide? And the answer that many of us seem to have come up with is, well, if we just elect the right politicians, if we just get the right judges appointed, that will stall the persecution, that will buy us time. And friends, I understand this line of thinking well because I advocated it for many years until I encountered this text from the Bible in Psalm 146. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. The Lord will reign forever. Friends, hoping in politicians and judges is fruitless. If you need evidence for that, I would tell you, in the 1992 Supreme Court case, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which is the case that affirmed Roe v. Wade and established it as continuing to be the law of this land, seven of the nine judges who sat in judgment of that case were appointed by pro-life presidents. And yet a majority of that court reaffirmed abortion rights. Which just goes to show politicians' plans don't always work out and judges are unpredictable. But let's say your, your wishes come true and you get all the politicians and all the judges that you like. Guess what? They're just men. So they're mortal. Their rule won't last forever. Eventually they'll be replaced by somebody else you won't like. Or worse than that, the people you are hoping in might turn out to be quite corrupt. They might not turn out to be the people you thought they were. 
After all, isn't that what Psalm 2 says they'll do? They will rage against the Lord. They will rebel against him. Don't think, friends, that somehow this is all going to stop if we just get the right combination of the right people in the right place. Friends, don't think that God's people can be shielded from persecution through playing the political game, through the realms of government and power and politics. Friends, human nature being what it is, and human political power being what it is, we've got to understand that political institutions and judicial institutions are inherently bent towards corruption and towards rebellion against the Lord. It's a law of nature, and it isn't going to change. So put your hope in Christ. Trust him to protect you. Trust him to help you endure should persecution come. And don't think that politics is your refuge because persecution is often perpetrated by political leaders. Now we come to the fourth truth we find in this passage, and here I want to drop down to verse 22. Jesus says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Okay, so up to this point, Jesus has told the twelve that they can expect to face persecution, both from Jews and from Gentiles, which is basically everybody. And now just to reinforce this point, Jesus comes back again, and he says, You will be hated by all. Now, it's important to realize when Jesus says all here, he doesn't actually mean all people. Because there are some people who don't hate the 12, right? Jesus doesn't hate the 12, and the 12 don't hate each other. And we saw last week there's a bigger crowd of disciples around, and they probably don't hate the 12. Um, the people that the 12 are going to win for Christ, they're not going to hate the 12 either, right? So these words don't mean that believers are condemned to be hated by every person on the globe. But what they do mean is that the vast majority of unbelieving people in this world will be antagonistic towards us. And not just in this place or that place, not just in this culture or that culture. Friends, this is true throughout the whole world. Why? Well, Jesus says this antagonism is for my name's sake. The issue is people in this lost world hate Jesus. They hate Jesus' claim of lordship. They hate that Jesus has declared he will judge them. And so they oppose Jesus, and that means they will oppose us, and we're going to talk about why that is in just a minute. But what I want to point out here is the universality of this hatred. Friends, we cannot outrun it. It is found in every culture, every religion, every system of government. Friends, opposition to the gospel is the one thing that virtually every non-Christian can agree on in the world. And why is that? Because behind all the nations of this world, there stands just one intelligence. 2 Corinthians 4 says the God of this world is Satan, and he reigns over this fallen planet. And he stands behind every institution of government and culture on the globe. They might say, well, really? Like, he's behind all of it? Because that might seem strange to us because patterns of culture seem different from place to place. You know, India's culture looks different than China's culture, and China's culture looks different than America's culture. But even though these cultures may look different, they all have this one thing in common. They're all against Christ. They're all against the gospel. They're all against his rule and his word. And that is because Satan stands behind all of these cultures. What's more, 1 Thessalonians 3 tells us Satan is the architect of persecution. And he has all these institutions to use at his disposal to hurt Christians. So friends, we can't outrun persecution by fleeing somewhere because this whole world is in Satan's clutches. We must expect to find hatred and opposition wherever we may go. And that includes our workplace. We may suffer discrimination in the workplace for our beliefs. You might get passed over for a job. You might get fired. We might experience it in society at large, being cursed at, coming out of church. People think you're a bigot because you've got a Bible. I don't know. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons people hate Christians out there and articulate those hatreds today. Kids, you may encounter it in your schools, and if you go to college, you're definitely going to encounter it there. Persecution can appear anywhere around us, and we should expect it because there is such a widespread hatred towards Jesus. But friends, even though that's the case, we don't need to despair. We don't need to despair, number one, because Jesus Christ has won victory at the cross, right? Satan has, is the architect of persecution, but Christ has defeated Satan and his demons in principle. Colossians 2 says he has triumphed over them. He has put them as a spectacle. He has vanquished them in principle, and in the end, he will cast them into the lake of fire and attain total uh, final victory. But friends, we don't need to despair because Jesus has won. 
We also don't need to despair because Jesus has promised to bring justice to those who hate and persecute Christians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we read that when Jesus returns in flaming fire with his mighty angels, he will inflict vengeance upon those who afflict believers. There will be justice. And finally, friends, there is the promise of glory. We will be delivered from this fallen world. We will exist in the new creation forever and ever in unending bliss if you have trusted Christ that's true for you. And so we don't need to despair because there's widespread hatred out there towards Jesus. But we know, need to also know that it is there. I think it's very easy for us to develop a bubble mindset, thinking everything's safe and nothing's really problematic, and when persecution comes, it will blindside you. I need you to know that this is real and these dangers are real. But not only is persecution out there somewhere, we come now to our fifth truth, and I think this is our most tragic point. And here we see how widespread persecution can be and how close to us it can arise. We might expect to see persecution coming to us from governments or from religious leaders or from bosses or coworkers or friends. But now Jesus says, you need to expect to find opposition in the one place you would hope to never find it, in your own home. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and a father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. As part of the worldwide opposition to the gospel, Jesus here tells us this opposition will even find its way into our own homes. That where we would hope to find love and loyalty, we may instead find hatred and treachery. Here Jesus says to the twelve, that they're going to see family members deliver one another over to execution. The idea seems to be that there will be a context of governmental persecution and unbelieving family members will rat out, they will inform on believing family members who will be put to execution. How can this be? You know, it's often said blood is thicker than water, but friends, here we learn that spirit is thicker than blood. And just as we believers have a common spirit, the Holy Spirit, which gives us a profound fellowship with one another, we need to know that those who are captivated by the spirit of this age have a fundamental commitment that drives deeper than familial bonds. They have an entrenched opposition to the gospel that often causes them to hate and desire the destruction of their believing relatives. For some of you, this seems impossible because... Praise God, you have pleasant family situations that have not been marked by this kind of turmoil. But I would tell you there are many people in this room who have seen their families divided over the claims of Christ and his word. And Jesus tells us in this chapter, you need to know this is not a rare occurrence. This is something you should expect could well befall you. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. These words may trouble and confuse us. We may think, well, Jesus is the prince of peace. What does he mean when he comes not to bring peace but a sword? Friends, one day Jesus will bring peace to this earth, but he will do so by conquering it, by subjugating it. But until that day comes, this world remains in rebellion against God. And yet God is not passive in the face of this rebellion. That's why he sent the Son into the world, to inaugurate the kingdom of God. God's reign has begun to burst forth in this dark world through Jesus and his ministry and his death and his resurrection. God has begun to draw out a people for his own possession from the mass of fallen humanity. Through Jesus, God is making aggressive moves against the rebellion of this world which amplifies the conflict, which causes those who hate God to rebel against him yet further. And so Jesus, simply by coming to this world and performing the will of the Father, generates division. Because he demands we repent. He demands we submit to his lordship. He demands we choose sides. And those demands for our loyalty and obedience either draw us to him or push us away from him. And as people respond to Jesus, what happens is a line of division emerges across humanity, separating workplaces and schools and, yes, families. Friends, we need to know that just because we belong to Christ does not mean that our spouse belongs to Christ or that our children belong to Christ or that our parents will belong to Christ. 
And the very fact that we belong to Christ may cause us to lose some of these relationships because we can no longer live the way we used to live, because we can no longer condone what we used to condone, because we call on our loved ones to repent and believe when they don't want to. I mean, this stresses relationships. This can end relationships. But friend, we've got to remember that when we serve Jesus, he is our Lord, and he must take precedence over every other loyalty in our lives. We've seen this previously, right? Remember the guy who said, I need to go bury my father? Jesus said, you follow me. Leave the dead to bury the dead. We'll talk about it again next week. When we look at verse 37 in this chapter, where Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus says our loyalty to him must come before all else. And if that causes offense to unbelieving family members, so be it. Of course, we hope that won't be the case. We must pray for unbelieving family members. We must witness to unbelieving family members. We must pursue unbelieving family members. But we cannot compromise. We cannot capitulate for unbelieving family members. And yes, this may lead to antagonism. Yes, it may lead to betrayal. Yes, it may lead to heartbreak. In verse 21, Jesus says, it may even lead to your death. But our allegiance to Jesus must outweigh every other allegiance. And again, we'll say more about this next week. All right, so we've seen now persecution can arise from religious leaders and political leaders and family members and really from anywhere. But now we come to our last point, and the issue is this, friends. Why do we face this persecution? If there is so much hatred for Jesus, why does that rebound onto us? And that's what we, come, we find as we come to verse 24. Jesus as a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? The truth Jesus reveals here is that believers experience persecution ultimately because we have a profound and a real connection to Jesus. And Jesus endured persecution. At, at this point in his ministry, the only damage that Jesus has yet received is reputational. He's been slandered. See this at the end of chapter 9. Jesus has performed all of these miracles, and everybody knows the miracles are real, but the Jewish religious elites can't acknowledge it. And so what do they say in chapter 9, verse 34? They say, Jesus cast out demons by the prince of demons. They say Jesus is satanic. They can't explain the miracles away, so they, they, they slander the source. They blaspheme how it is that Jesus can perform these wonderful messianic miracles of compassion. And Jesus knows they're making this blasphemous claim about him. He'll respond to it in chapter 12. This word Beelzebul here is a reference to Satan. Jesus' enemies are saying Jesus is satanic. But here Jesus is, is simply pointing out what kind of a reception the world has given to him. He has come performing these mighty deeds of compassion. And he was rejected and slandered. And in fact, this is only the beginning of the persecution that Jesus is going to endure. Because ultimately the world won't be satisfied with just hurting his reputation. They want to hurt his body. They want to spill his blood. Chapter 20, Jesus says, The Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. That's where this story is going. That's how much the world hates Jesus. They want to pursue him to his death. But if that's how the unbelieving world treats Jesus, the question Jesus poses here is, how should we expect the world to treat his followers? And Jesus answers this question by describing the relationship his believers have to him. If we belong to Jesus in the first place, he is our teacher and we are his disciples. We're to learn all that he's commanded us according to Matthew 28. We're to follow him. We're to follow his example and his teaching. More than that, we learn here, we are his slaves and he is our master. We are to obey him in all things. Lastly, Jesus says here, it's like he's the leader of the family and we are like his extended family members. In all of these examples, Jesus occupies a superior position to us. And yet, if we've entrusted ourselves to him, he occupies a position that is related to our position. So we're connected to him, but we're always inferior to him. Now, I think there's two things we can take away from this. First, this tells us that the way the world treated Jesus is closely connected to the way the world will treat us. And this makes sense. 
Because we said last week, the disciples' mission here in chapter 10 and our mission today is to proclaim the same message Jesus proclaimed, the same message that incensed all these people and made them want to kill Jesus. So if we proclaim this message, they'll want to get us too, right? But second, look in verse 25. Jesus says they're going to malign us even more than they maligned him. Say, why? Well, Jesus is the head of the household. And in those days, the head of the household was entitled to respect. Well, Jesus didn't get much respect from the world. But if the slight respect of the world, as slight as it was, was seen in the brutality and the violence and the hatred that was given to Jesus, then imagine what the world will do to us who are entitled to no respect from the world, who are not in the top position. We should be expecting to be treated worse than Jesus. That's what he says here. Why? Why is the world so desirous of our blood? Jesus says this in John 15. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. The unbelieving world around us persecutes us because they don't know the Father. They are disconnected from his goodness and truth. They are blinded. And in their blindness, they have reversed what is good and evil. Jesus says this in John 16. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. That's a very perverse value system, is it not? But the fact that they have, unbelieving people around us have this kind of perspective is why we must not regard our persecutors as our enemies. This is what Ephesians 6 is getting at when it says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Because the people of this world who oppose us are not acting in a right state of mind. They are blinded. They are pawns of Satan and his demons. And so we should not hate our persecutors. We should not curse them. Jesus says in Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray that their eyes would be open. Pray that they may repent of this terrible wickedness and turn to Christ. Now, another thing I want you to see here today, friends, is persecution is inescapable. You can't outrun it. You can't outstrategize it. You can't avoid it by retreating into yourself. If you really know Jesus, then you, then you need to know these sorts of plans are doomed to fail because, friends, we are not greater than Jesus and we cannot avoid sharing this part of his faith. If we really belong to him, we must face persecution. It is literally a part of our calling. 1 Peter 2 says, To this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Part of our calling is to follow Jesus' example of suffering persecution. In fact, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise, and that's something we should examine ourselves by. Friends, if we have somehow avoided any blowback from the world throughout our whole lives, Paul tells us something's wrong with what we're doing. Maybe we're not persecuted because the people around us don't know that we belong to Jesus, because we don't talk about the gospel with them, or because our lives look worldly, or we face no persecution because we have walled ourselves off from unbelievers and we have repudiated the Great Commission. Whyever it may be that we face no opposition, it shows something is wrong. Because the pursuit of godliness will without fail cause us to face persecution. That's what Paul says. And just that's what Christ experienced too. But friends, I also want you to see this morning that there's one thing that we do see in our passage here that Jesus tells us about how we should face persecution. And that's with contentedness. Look at verse 25. Jesus says, It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. Friends, there is a contentment to be had in the midst of suffering persecution. Because when you suffer persecution, that shows your genuine connection to Christ. If you suffer for your faith, it shows you are indeed Jesus' disciple. You are indeed Jesus' slave. Because you are receiving a measure of what Jesus received. You are indeed following his example. An example powerfully described in Hebrews 12. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. We are to endure persecution by looking to Jesus' example. When Jesus was faced with the horrible suffering of the cross, the public humiliation, and the agony, what was his attitude? 
He despised the shame. He wasn't intimidated or broken by it. He endured the cross. He didn't shrink from it. Why not? Because of the joy that was set before him. The joy of obeying the Father. The joy of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. The joy that comes from receiving exaltation to the Father's right hand. And the bliss that would be his forevermore. And friends, those same principles show us how we also must face the terribleness of persecution. By remembering there is a joy that is set before us. 2 Corinthians 4 says, This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And Paul who wrote that, when he underwent suffering, it didn't seem light or momentary. He suffered terribly. But you know what? From the perspective of eternity, it was light and momentary. Because there is a glorious eternal reward that awaits those who endure to the end. And Jesus said to the church at Smyrna, the church where Polycarp was, the martyr we talked about at the beginning, Jesus said, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And that's a promise for us too, friends. Friends, Jesus was faithful despite the, the persecution, and he won the reward. And we likewise must be faithful when persecution is put to us, laying aside all that would distract us, all that would stumble us, and running with endurance following Jesus' example. That's how we gain the crown of life. I'm going to say a lot more about this next week and maybe the week after that. Because we're going to see as we go through these verses again, Jesus gives us something like 12 different responses for how we should respond to persecution. But I want to close with this today. Serving Jesus is not easy. It's costly. If we do it, we will face persecution. If you don't belong to Jesus today, you say, why do I want to sign up for this? Here's the answer. Because God will exert dominion over this fallen world. He will pour out wrath upon all who will not submit to him. And there is salvation only in Jesus Christ. So turn from your life of sin to him and entrust yourself to his deity, death, and resurrection and be saved. But today, if you do belong to Jesus, take heart. Yes, we'll face persecution. But we face it only when we obey Jesus as we follow his example, as we grow in Christ's likeness, and as we face it, not only do we gain an opportunity to proclaim Jesus to those who need to hear salvation, but we are promised his help, we are promised eternal rewards, we are promised a share of his great victory. And so friends, as you encounter persecution, I want you to be of good cheer. Be strong in your faith and look to Jesus' example who endured because there was joy. He was able to see joy in the midst of the suffering. But I also want you to remember Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray.